Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. This is a story most of you know, right? You, most of you know at least the outlines of this story. Uh, and uh, so this morning, it is a wonderful thing to be studying about the first case of civil disobedience against an unjust and corrupt regime. So, overlords, exactly. It's just what's here, people. It's just what's here. I'm just teaching what's here. So let us begin uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, which does not begin uh, with talking about the people enslaved, right? So uh, that is not where Shemot begins. Let's see where it does begin. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each coming with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, God, and Asher. The total number of persons that were of Jacob's issue came to 70. Jacob being already in Egypt. Joseph, uh, Joseph being uh, already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the Israelites were fertile and prolific. They multiplied and increased very greatly, so that the land was filled with them. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting uh, against us and rise from the ground. So they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built garrison cities for Pharaoh, Pithom, and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Okay. We have the 70, right? A number of completion, right? In total, whenever we see 70, this is a number of fullness, a number of completion. So 70 people, of course, make up uh, the household of, ya- of Yaakov, who went down to uh, Egypt. Yosef, of course, is the vizier of Egypt. He is second in power only to Paro. But it's you know quick. We're getting a very quick recap because by verse eight we get a new king arose over Egypt, probably a new monarchy, right? Not just a new king, not just a new pharaoh, a new dynasty. Um, so scholars try to figure out which dynasty this is. Some feel like they have it figured out. Like my notes tell me um, when this is, but but most scholars agree it's very hard to pinpoint what pharaoh this is to identify the cities of Pitom and Ramses it's very difficult to pinpoint um, what what time this is even trying to talk about although like I said the scholars like uh, Sarna who did the commentary for JPS uh, Exodus puts it at uh, Ramses II, the 19th dynasty uh, in Egypt about uh, 1290 BCE so um in either case, a new, a new dynasty begins that does not recognize Joseph. This is the first time we get the, the word yada in Exodus, right? The word to know. And what, are we, what does the Torah always mean when it talks about to know? <laughs> so 
Often, often the Torah means sex. In this case, it's not that they did not have sex with Joseph. So, um, so yada to know is always an intimate knowledge. Is always it's not about oh I knew that right. It's about it's not knowing facts. It's it's a knowing that is deeper. Uh, and so in this case, not knowing Joseph means it's not they didn't know his name, right? Or they'd never heard of him. It meant they whoever whoever this new dynasty is. Is not aware. It is not. It has put Joseph and all that he stood for and his relatives out of the picture, right? Um, has two separate <clears throat> verbs for to know a fact and to really be familiar with something. Yeah. One kind of mean in French, one means to kind of know somebody to be acquainted with them, right. and another one means. Knowledge in terms of depth. So those distinctions are clear. <coughs> right. So, so other languages seem to preserve like this idea that there's you kind of know something off the top of your head and then you really know something. And so Torah has that distinction. Yes. It might or might not. It might be that the new dynasty kicks Joseph out. Right. In terms of, you know, like it's a new it's a new regime. Right. And. So, so that leaves Joseph's people vulnerable, because remember they are not Egyptian, right? They they've come down, they are settled in Goshen, and they've come down. Why are they in Egypt? Because of the famine. And we know from the historical record that people in Canaan would push down into Egypt when there was a famine. Why was there food in Egypt if there wasn't food in Canaan? Joseph said. Well, Joseph put some away. The Nile River, right? So, so the so Egypt is uh, its irrigation is by the Nile. In Canaan, what is it dependent on? Rain. Rainfall. So often there was food in Egypt when there wasn't food in Canaan. Not always. It depends what the drought. I mean, what the drought? What the um, crop failure was <laughs> caused by. But it was normative for people in southern Canaan to push down into northern Egypt whenever the famine had to do with drought and rainfall. So th- that's what happens to the Israelites. That's why they're there. And it seems things are going well for them, right? They have increased and multiplied. And those of you who were on the women's retreat with me recall we studied the text about, oh, no, if you were at the women's Passover celebration like four or five years ago, we talked about how it is that they multiplied so much. What was going on that that the um, Israelites were so fertile? Anybody remember what the Midrash says? All right, we'll talk. Maybe we'll, we'll see if we talk about it. <laughs> yes, that was a, that was a, and, and I'm so panicked about what am I going to do? Like I've already covered this text with them. What am I going to do next? <laughs> Clearly, I can do it again. I don't have to worry. <laughs> Thank you, Laura Diamond. The mirrors. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. So who's Pharaoh talking to? Chief of staff. He's chief of staff. So it seems Pharaoh wants buy-in from some of right his closest, you know, his cabinet. He wants... 
He wants support from his cabinet for what he's about to do because it's pretty brutal. We we brush over this because we know it so well, but if we try to confront this text as just a story we're hearing for the first time and really put ourselves in it, put yourself in Nazi Germany, right? It's 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 that kind of stakes here, right? It's this is genocide that's, you know, about to happen, right? So um so he wants he needs buy-in because what he's about to do is is pretty radical what Pharaoh's about to decree, right? So um they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built garrison cities for Pharaoh, Pitom and Ramses. But the more they were pressed, the more they increased and spread out so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Again, it's hard to pinpoint exactly uh, where Pitom is uh in in uh Egyptian uh Pitim is the house of Atum. So Pitom, right, the house of Atum, one of the gods of Egypt. When it says they built garrisons, is the they the Israelites? Yes. So this is um, this is cons- what is it? Conscription. Uh-huh. It's forced labor, uh, which is not unknown in the ancient world. If you want to build garrison cities, if you want to build the pyramids, if you want to build a huge something or other you have to conscript labor to get that done right you're you're not going to pay regular laborers to to do something like that if you rule absolutely you're going to conscript the people into service into civil service um so in this case it's it's forced labor for a part of the population for the hebrews one of the first places we see this term uh if you look at verse 9 vayomer el amo he says to his people this is paro hine am bene israel rav this is a interesting term am bene israel we don't see this other places it's a unique phrase here uh so usually we see am israel right that we're an am we're a nation but am bene israel the nation of the descendants of israel is a unique term the which would be Beit Israel that would be Beit Israel so am bene israel is an interesting phrase but this is the first time we're called bene israel the first time we are called the people israel is by our enemy right so it it doesn't go unnoted by many scholars that who is a jew is determined often by the enemy Who has the right to return to the land of Israel as a Jew? Well, how's that different definition come what's the definition of a Jew? <laughs> Anyone that that Hitler would have murdered. That's who's a Jew. Well, but that's not the case in Israel now. If you would have been murdered by Hitler, you have the right yes, to return. Yes. Right, but For example, converts can't go unless they are orthodox converts. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's not true. Anymore. Not true anymore. The Israel movement for progressive Judaism now represents huh? all converts and contacts the rabbi in America and then um declares that the our converts was a Supreme Court decision. It was in the civil courts that that decision was made. So you got to love Israel. Right? There's no separation of church and state. In Israel, right? So the Orthodox have control over all the portfolios having to do with religious matters. And sometimes if you want to change those, you go to the civil courts and sue in a civil court that my civil rights are being are being uh fairly recent. I mean within the last I was still in Duluth. Yeah, I was still in Duluth. 
So it's at least seven years ago. It was once upon a time. So they can come. They can come to Israel. They're welcome to come. However, are they recognized as Jewish? Yes. The Israel Movement for Progressive Judaism, their rabbis stamp somebody's conversion as kasher, and they get Jew on their identity card. Um, having contacted a rabbi in good standing here in the States who will vouch that they did the conversion. The, the other piece here is that the creation of a people sometimes is that they share a history of suffering. Indeed. And there, there, there's other examples. Today, you talk about the Palestinian people. You know, For some people, that's a cultural group that was born of a common history. Right. And often of suffering. Carol? If they have a Jewish grandparent, oh, if they have, okay. that's who would have been murdered Many. as a Jew. Oh, you have to have been, if Hitler would have murdered you as a oh, Jew, Jew, you have the right to return as a Jew. Okay, I thought it was just gypsies in general that he also. No. But they're not Jewish. No, I know that. Right. So, oh, what, so she's not saying Hitler would have murdered you generally. Yes, that's right. That's no. right. No, it, so let me let me say it. Who's a Jew? Who is a Jew for the right of return is defined by who Hitler would have murdered as a Jew. As a Jew. Exactly. So my point being, my, my point being, we are, who is a Jew by the state of Israel is still being defined by Hitler, the enemy. Exactly. I, 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 think, I think what this is also saying is that the, the, the Jews actually define the Israelites themselves because it's clear that they never assimilated into the church and society, which is why they always thought of as somehow the other. Right. So they remain other. Um, and part of that, I know the rabbis love to lift up that they were so committed to the ways of their forefathers that they never assimilated. But the reality would have been in the ancient world, in ancient Egypt, Semites were discriminated against by the Egyptians. They, they weren't. They couldn't assimilate because they were they were Semites, and Egyptians wouldn't eat with Semites, right? That's why Joseph doesn't eat with his brothers, because Egyptians would not have. It would have been disgusting to them to eat with Semites. So and that's also one of the reasons I understand that Kashrut was established to keep us from eating with other people. Correct. So the same way that the Egyptians didn't eat with others, that's what Kashrut was to do, was to keep us separate, right? And because when you eat with people, it's a very intimate thing, and you socialize, and you know that leads to dancing. <laughs> so, so don't lunch with people like that you right, <laughs> but you don't want to dance with. All right. So let's go to 13. The Egyptians ruthlessly imposed upon the Israelites the various labors that they made them perform. Ruthlessly, they made life bitter for them with harsh labor and mortar and bricks and with all sorts of tasks in the field. The king of Egypt spoke uh, to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, saying, when you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth school. If it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, fearing God, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing, letting the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, 
because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous. Before the midwife can come to them, they have given birth. And God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and increased greatly. And because of the midwi- and because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every boy that is born you shall throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. All right. So we have Shifra and Pua. We are told, right, that uh, the king of Egypt spoke to Mialdot Haivriot. What is a Mialedet? What are the Mialdot? Midwives. What is Haivriot? Of the Hebrews. What does this mean? The Hebrew, the midwives of the Hebrews. Ah, one possibility is that the midwives are Hebrews. How reliable would Hebrew midwives be being entrusted to kill Hebrew baby boys? Not terribly reliable necessarily, right? So, so that's an argument against they are Hebrew midwives. What is the other possibility? If they're not Hebrews, what's the other possibility? With this, they're the midwives for the Hebrews, right? So if that's the case, uh, what can we assume if there's only two of them? If it's the midwives for the Hebrews, really? That's a lot of people giving birth and only two midwives. Um, So likely, these are the two who are in charge of the midwives and uh, midwifery uh, was situated in the part of society in the ancient world and particularly in ancient Egypt uh, that was kind of the the cross between the magical and the medical Um, those were very related in the ancient world right and still is says Sarah right so they're uh, they have skills and they have they have a high level of of technical knowledge Right, that makes them powerful because they're dealing with life, right? Life and death. And so, and in the ancient world, uh, as it is in many places in the world still, infant mortality was extraordinarily high. So, you know, you're, at, and, and the woman's life was always at risk as well. So, midwives were really dealing with life and death, both for baby and for mother, every single time they delivered. And if you are kind of person who becomes a midwife, so it's certain kind of people that are drawn to becoming midwives. Do I see a hand? You're just pointing at the rain. We love the rain. It just—it doesn't mean that there was only two midwives. It just said there's a bunch of midwives and two of them were named this and that. I mean, not just that they were named this and that. Yeah. Not just that they were named this and that. What just happened? What just happened? The Hebrews were enslaved. Verse 15. They're summoned to come to Pharaoh. There are not just two midwives named this and that. They're, who's, who's Pharaoh going to summon? The leaders. Pharaoh's going to summon who's in charge? The head of the department. The head of the department. 
right? So likely, Shifra and Pua are the two who are in charge of all of the midwives who are supposed to be attending to the Hebrews because the Hebrews are prolific, prolific, and and they're supposed to be killing the baby boys. So, so Pharaoh was like, uh, excuse me. Right, something is not happening according to plan. When you get summoned by Pharaoh because something's not happening that Pharaoh decreed, what what are we expecting to happen at the end of that visit? <laughs> They're going to be a little lighter for heads, right? So, um, so likely these are powerful women who are respected in Egyptian society. Possibly Shiframpur are the ones in charge of all. Um, of what's supposed to be happening with this part of the population, and they have to explain why the Hebrew population is still increasing at this rate. Do we know which god they were afraid of? We do not, but we can assume that our author, right, when it says fears God, right, generally is talking about Yod Hei Isn't the word Elohim here? That's right. So is it their Elohim oh. or Right? Or Elohim, capital E, right? But generally, Torah means Yud Hevafe one, or if it's the E author, Elohim. So, so. And they're not going to include a story this important if they're talking about another culture. This is about our culture. About our culture? About the Hebrew culture. This is a story of our culture. So when they use. And God, mm-hmm. they're speaking of the Hebrew God. So that that could be. That's one argument that it's the Hebrew God is, well, duh, it's our story, so it must be our God. Um, but I find it interesting that the the heroes, the heroines, the first heroines of the book of Exodus, if we take this the um, explanation we just agreed on, just play with it for a minute, are not Jews. They're, they're not Hebrews. They're righteous Gentiles, right? They are not Hebrews, which I find said, fascinating. You this job because you have a great respect for life. And You're not going to be killing babies. But certainly, what I love about this text is that our story, our mythic na- birth of a nation story starts with the heroism of two non-Hebrew women who respected life. So the story is immediately telling us Torah understands even our ancestors writing these stories understood that in every culture there are people who are respectful of life, right? So I just love that about our foundation narrative that it doesn't say, you know, we unlike them, right? Which is what the midwives are going to use in just a minute, right? All right. The inclusion here of not only righteous Gentiles but enemies who have shaped our culture I think is very enriching to all the stories. Absolutely. So the um, the question Hebrew or Egyptian, I love this quote. The rabbis are divided on this. Rashi declares the former, that they're Hebrews, but um, but Abravanel and uh, Samuel David Luzado say that they are Egyptians. Luzado reasons that this is because it would have been unreasonable for Pharaoh to think that the Hebrew women would have murdered their own people. Chief Rabbi of England, former Chief Rabbi of England, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs comments, the Torah's ambiguity on this point is deliberate. We do not know to which people they belonged because their particular form of moral courage transcends nationality and race. Love that. It doesn't matter. That because that moral demand to not hurt innocent life is 
beyond nation or people or race or religion or anything that we can come up with. I love that. Um, so he challenges the midwives, right, saying, what, you know, when you he's, – he's charged them with um, looking at the birth stool and if it's a boy killing them, right? And when that doesn't happen, they're summoned. At verse 18, it says, why have you done this thing, letting the boys live? It's not a question, what's happening with the Israelites? Pharaoh knows the boys are not being murdered at the rate they should be. Um, so he knows his orders have been defied. So his question is not, have you, but why have you? Right? Why, why if he wanted to commit genocide, would he kill the boys and not the girls? We can presume a couple of things. So, it, so, and so, I should maybe not have used genocide. Um, he he wants to limit the population of the no Hebrews. Women, then the Jewish men. So you tell me. Gonna, I don't know. Why are men more of a threat? They're strong. Oh, they're weak. Military. They, so they are they are the real threat. What are women used for? Birth. And pleasure. Of course. So. You have a slave population. You know the women are not. But on the other hand, if if they are had, not a threat, if they had killed the women, that would have basically forced the men either to be celibate or to join Egyptian society, or to become an army to take revenge on their women having been killed. I mean, so the threat seems to be right. That the fear seems to be that there will be an insurrection against Pharaoh. Or is there also the sense here that men matter and women don't? That too. Absolutely that too. Um, but but presumably with, with no men, the women of Israel are not, the Hebrew women are not a threat. Back as one of the plagues. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. It has to, right? It's not good literature if you don't have stuff like that coming back. Exactly right. Is there maybe a suggestion that the women were being honest about um, well, the reason is because they're too vigorous, you know. And maybe they really did help them, but they just wanted to kind of gloss over the reason why they let the boys. It's even better. Yeah. It's even better. So when their lives are on the line, when Pharaoh says, why have you done this? Why have you defied me, essentially? Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, say Shifra and Pua. They are vigorous. Is that what yours translation yeah. says? Yes, probably it's a decent translation. I'm not going to argue with JPS, God forbid. But what does the Hebrew say? Chayot. Ha! Chayot. Rita Ephros. Animals. They are animals, is what it says. Chayot, beasts. Right? birth like that. They're not like Egyptian women. These women are animals they're just nasty before the midwife can come to them they have given birth meaning they just drop babies in the field and then go back to work they're they're beasts what do they just and so and what does pharaoh say right nothing right and god dealt well with the midwives right and the people multiplied and increased greatly. And because the midwives fear God, God established households for Pharaoh's, Pharaoh is completely Nonsense. silent here. Completely. <laughs> but clearly they lived. 
So he bought it. So what have they just done? They saved us. How? How? They used his prejudice. They used Pharaoh's own and the Egyptians' own prejudice against the Jewish people, against the Hebrews, to to save themselves and to save these babies, right? These women are beasts. We can't even get there in time. They're not like Egyptian women, right? Well, of course, they're exactly like Egyptian women, right? Like, but that and that is, I think, a beautiful move, right, on Torah's part to say they outsmarted Paro using his own, right, prejudice against him, and they uh, have established for themselves here uh, by God households, right? This is only we only see this as men. In Torah, men get households, women get children. Men have households established through them. So Shifra and Pua become essentially um, ancestors, right? That's what it means to have, you know, a household. It means you you become the ancestor of that household, and so they. Elevated them to men. Instead. Exactly right. Exactly right. And um, and so this is the first case, the first recorded case. Uh, certainly in Torah, uh, one of the earliest that we know of, of civil disobedience, right, against a regime that was all-powerful and against a despot that was all-powerful, and it's these two midwives. There's kind of a parallel with Abraham arguing with God over Sodom and Gomorrah in the sense that they are assuming that God is a moral God, that there's morality here, because when it says that they they feared God, that somehow they knew that this was wrong, mm-hmm. and that God had to be just. Right. Robin Cohen writes, and I'll be using this quote tonight. We have a speaker from JWW on the refugee crisis. Uh, Robin Cohen says, "In our own time, I can imagine anti-immigration proponents quoting Pharaoh. Come." Let us deal shrewdly with them. They have become a people numerous and powerful. The prejudices directed at the Hebrew people are the same as those that fall on the poor, foreigners, and refugees today. They have too many children. They are lazy. And someday they may dilute our own people so much that they could take advantage of a national crisis and, God forbid, gain control. Not only are Shifra and Pua models of how women bonding together can be freedom fighters against an oppressive system, but more generally, the text moves beyond nationalistic concerns to bear witness to the power of faith to transcend ethnic boundaries. We have an opportunity in our own time to speak out against injustice, just as the, as the midwives did thousands of years ago. And the, and the midwives demonstrated it doesn't matter how few our numbers, each individual counts in the fight for justice and liberation, right? An incredibly important message for us, that every individual counts in the fight against injustice and unjust policies, every one of us. And it's very easy to lose sight of that. But Shifra and Pua, right, are, are the lesson, they're the reminder. And we're going to get more uh, acts like this, yes, as we turn to Chapter 2. Wait, did, did the yes. rabbis talk about why two? Why Not two? One. No. I mean, if it was going to be the head of the midwives. The, the, I, I haven't ever seen any commentary about why two. You would think, you know, that there was like one head of the midwives. Right. No, I've not seen that. Yes. Yeah. Why didn't Pharaoh just kill them all? It's a good question. I don't know. What do you all think? Because they have no slaves. Because what? They'd have no slaves. They'd have no slaves. 
so possibly wanting to keep part of the workforce, right? Domestic servants, right? Conscripted labor, but not so many that they could be an actual threat to the regime. Um, possibly they couldn't get away with that, right? Hitler even didn't publicize what he was doing, right? Like, it's just sometimes there's just too too you go too far, right? You know, you, you think this is pretty far <laughs> to kill all the baby boys, Margo? That's very late. Very late. Very late. Very late. Here, it would have been by the man. And there was no Jewish. Back here, there was no Jewish. You were Hebrew. or And later, Israelite. And Israelite identity and tribal identity went by the father. Um, we, we know there are there's a pre... Um, there's a... The culture that predates this is matrilocal and matrilineal, who would have gone by the mother. But by the time the Torah is written, it's already patriarchy. So how late? You said that happened very late. Um, I'm not sure exactly when the rabbinic edict happened, but it was the rabbis who did it. Um, And it was a kindness to women because uh, when you had pogroms and you had invasion of Jewish villages, you couldn't be sure whose child it was because women were raped. Routinely, they were raped. So if you're raped and you don't know who the father is, possibly your child is a mumser, right? He's a bastard. And if you have a bastard, they can't marry within the Jewish community. So it was actually a kindness to women that the rabbis ruled that that whether or not a child is Jewish is based on the mother's identity, not the father's identity. So that there would never be a question that a child born of a Jewish Mother was was not Jewish and therefore couldn't marry with or you know the mamzer status I, I misspoke mamzer is someone who's outside of wedlock so that that still could be the case but but a non-Jewish baby if like she was raped and by a Cossack or whatever then I mean it's not that late but um, that baby wouldn't be Jewish and therefore couldn't marry within the community it would be ostracized it would be ostracized and imagine what that would do to the mother who's already been traumatized so that was why. Um, Jewish identity went through the mother. Now, within progressive Judaism, however, uh, the reform movement was um, the first to make a really big issue out of <laughs> issue get um, to make an issue out of patrilineal descent. Right, that if your father was Jewish and you're raised Jewish, you're Jewish, according to the reform movement. We call it in the Reconstructionist movement egalitarian descent. Um, that. Whoever your Jewish parent is, if you're raised Jewish, you are considered a Jew within the Reconstructionist movement. And we just, at one convention uh, years ago, uh, maybe like five years ago, had a very interesting rabbinic debate because so many people are now hiring surrogates to have babies, particularly in the Jewish world, because we are more educated and more generally more wealthy and so we wait later to have children and that's when you have a lot of infertility issues so in the Jewish community there's a lot more use of um, assist 
assistant, uh, assistive technologies um, to help women become pregnant. So that often means you have an egg donor and a sperm donor. So if you have an egg donor and a sperm donor, or it's my egg and it's carried by a surrogate, how is Jewish identity determined now? And we had a huge debate that was very impassioned. It was very, it got very heated. I, I don't say, it did get heated, but it was more about like it, it touched off so much stuff for the people who had adopted, for people who had carried children from an egg donor, from people who'd given their egg to be put in another place. Rabbis in the room. We all had all of these circumstances, right? You know, I had a donor to have my child. Like, all of us in the room arguing this had skin in the game. This was not an intellectual conversation. This got really, really pointed. Um, so much so that one of my colleagues was in tears who had adopted a daughter from Colombia. And she said, why if there's an egg donor and a sperm donor, why is that baby Jewish because it's put in your uterus, but mine isn't? Like it, we, we should stop all of this. And all babies who are raised by Jews should be Jewish, period. Why does my child have to go to mikvah? And yours that doesn't have any Jewish anything doesn't have to because the sperm was Jewish. Like, what does that even mean? You know, my daughter doesn't know anything else. Why do I have to take her? Why does she have to be a convert? Not that there's anything wrong with convert, but it was like this whole, it was very interesting to see where the lines, like what the arguments were on all sides. And the decision became if any part of the baby is Jewish, whether it be womb, egg, or sperm, the baby is Jewish. The adoption goes to mikvah and has a conversion. You said if... uh that the reform movement said if the father is Jewish and the child is raised Jewish, what does child raised Jewish mean in that context? Not raised in another tradition. Okay, just not raised. But it could be raised secular. I mean, or, or just without... So you can have a Jewish father in a home that has no religion. In other words, it, but if you didn't grow up with any reference to Judaism at all, uh-huh. there's some question about whether or not that person needs to make a public statement about, I now choose to be part of the Jewish people, right? In other words, if you just find out on Ancestry.com oh, right. that your father, your birth father, your biological father is Jewish, but you were not raised mm-hmm. with any sense of belonging to the Jewish people, most people, including me, would recommend conversion. What or some kind of public ritual to say, I'm claiming my Jewish identity because it's an important step. Like if you haven't grown up with that to all of a sudden say, oh, I found out you know, my bio father was Jewish, so I'm now Jewish, it's like, what does that mean? So I think so. If you just if you find out that your birth mother was Jewish, and you've not been raised Jewish, I, I would want some kind of so that, way that to mark it. that for people that they're now choosing to be part of the Jewish people. So that is not a racial definition of Jew. That is a whole other conversation <laughs> that I'm not prepared to have. I've just started reading. Someone um, who recently died with no family was very much into reading from all traditions and um, his best friend who was with him as he died because he had nobody else um, was is a member of KI and asked that Chaim and I come see him in the hospital which we did as he was dying um, and so she brought me a bunch of his books when he died um, recently and s- like three or four of them were on race and Jewish identity so and one of them's on blood 
Judaism and blood, like as the relationship in Torah, which you'll be hearing about when we get to Leviticus, if I can read fast enough. Um, it's very interesting, but but this whole question of race, one thing I didn't realize until I started reading these books is that um, that most scholars agree these days, apparently, there is no such thing as race. Yeah, please, thank you. That it's a construct and that the race is irrelevant. Mixture. Everybody's a mixture um, and that that race itself, I didn't know that, um, race itself is now understood to be... Irrelevant. Irre- irre- it's, not, it's not even accurate to say race. So, um, Maybe so I think for sure what Sarah's lifting up is a person's choice, right? How we identify is choice. Um, however, for most of Jewish history, it wasn't a choice, really. You were born a Jew and you were treated as a Jew, and unless you converted to another religion, you were stuck. Right? You you couldn't leave. There was no secular identity. All identity was religious. And so if you were either, obviously I'll I'll date when I'm talking about you either Christian, you know, or Muslim or Jewish. If we're talking about Europe, for example, right? So you there wasn't an option not to be part of the Jewish people unless you converted to something else. Now we like to say every Jew is a Jew by choice. Or what your choice was, right? In Europe, the choice was made for you by Hitler, right? Whether you identified or not, which is one of the deep ironies of those Jews who assimilated completely in Europe, completely assimilated, and were murdered right along with people wearing payas. We were talking about conversion and choice and all this, but I think an adoption of an infant is interesting because traditionally that child had to be of course, and still is. Every child adopted now by a Jewish family is, it, that's not Jewish is still converted. Is it right? Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I remember that from years ago. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's go to chapter two, speaking of adoption. A certain man of the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw how beautiful he was, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket for him and caulked it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child into it and placed it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stationed herself at a distance to learn what would befall him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile while her maidens walked along the Nile. She spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it. When she opened it, she saw that it was a child, a boy, crying. She took pity on it and said, This must be a Hebrew child. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a Hebrew nurse to suckle the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter answered, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, who made him her son. She named him Moses, explaining, I drew him out of the water. All right. We're going we're gonna to obviously need, need to move through this at, at a little bit of a clip. Um, but I want to draw your attention to our YouTube channel um, because each one of these characters I have done a full almost hour teaching on uh, for the Women's Passover celebration every year. 
So it's very hard for me to move through this material quickly um, because it's there's so much here on Batya, on Pharaoh's daughter, on Miriam, on Yocheved, Moses' mother. On every one of them, I've done a whole hour. Um, it, it's an incredibly powerful and moving story. Uh, so forgive me that we're not going to be able to go as deep as I would like. All right, so we have a, a man of the house of Levi. Why Levi? Exactly, has to be. Because who's coming from this union? Moshe. Moshe has to be a Levite. Has to. All right. So a man of Levi went and married a woman of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And what is what happens when she sees her son? She saw beautifully. Vate we oto. Does everyone's translation say beautiful? This is beautiful. Rita Efros. Kitov. Creation. Thank you. She gives birth. She sees her child. Kitov. What are we told every single day of creation? God says, Tov. It is good. This is exactly, we are in the beginning of the book of Exodus and we are being pulled all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. This is creation. Kitov. The child was good. Well, beautiful then is a very bad translation because it mean it, it means physical, physically handsome or and possibly that's how that euphemism is used. You know, about children that tov means beautiful. I'm not going to argue with their scholars, but I think you lose for sure with that translation. You lose the resonance of kitov. What that means that she sees this like all creation. Whenever we create, right? We look at. At that miracle, and we say Kitov. It's exactly what God says when God creates the universe. That is what the mother says when she holds her infant, Kitov, right? Until they start yowling, and then I was just like, "Someone do something with them." Um, so she hit, she hides him. What's she supposed to do with him if it's a boy? He's supposed to be killed. He's supposed to be drowned in the Nile. So. She hides him for three months when she could hide him no longer. So imagine that moment for Yocheved. She can't hide him any longer. He's too big. He's making too much noise. He's squirming too much. We don't know. Maybe they count the months when a woman gets pregnant and log it. And she she could go three months and hide her pregnancy. But now now they have a record that, right, that surely there, there's a baby somewhere at this point. Right, so she bought herself three months, maybe, but she can't hide him anymore. What happens with circumcision? No. In in what case? Well, Moses. So this is before they are commanded to circumcise. How do we know that? What happens later in the Book of Exodus? Moses is circumcised mm-hmm. as an adult. He's circumcised, and then. <clears throat> His sons, right? So remind me, I don't know if it's this year in the triennial or not, but the bridegroom of blood, do you remember that text? With the foreskin and the leg and the flint knife and Sipora and, and, right? So that's how we know he's not circumcised here. All right, so. Um, There's no mention of, of Aaron, of his older brother. Right, correct. So she, when she could hide him no longer, what does she get? She gets a. Ha ha ha. What's the word used in Hebrew? Such a great text. I'm telling you guys. She gets a a teva. 
Where's the only other place we see Teva? Oh, yeah. Oh, that story. Back in Genesis, we have a Teva. We have an ark. And in the ark is placed life that's in danger of being destroyed. And it's put in the water. And it floats. And God takes care of it. And life is saved. And the world is repopulated, right? Okay, we, you you cannot read this story without that story here. Actually, I just saw a National Geographic show, and they made an ark which was a basket. It was round, oh and they did it with reeds mm-hmm. like that, and they used bitumen or pitch. pitch. Like that. It was just on about last month, uh-huh. and they made this gigantic round basket, and they said, oh, the ark, maybe it was round. So it's amazing that, that you just made that connection. Right? So, um, so she's right now the second, the third woman to defy Pharaoh's orders. She's risking her life and presumably the life of her family with this infant that she now can't keep because he'll be killed. So imagine this moment for Moses' mother. She, she creates a teva. She creates an ark that can't be steered, right? It's going to be, up to, up to left up to fortune, what's going to happen? Um, and she seal waterproofs it and puts the baby in there and pushes it down the Nile. So she takes, it's so beautiful, she takes the baby that's supposed to be put in the Nile and puts him in the Nile, right? It, it's this wonderful deliverance of the baby. She To save his life, she puts him in the Nile that's supposed to take his life not knowing, right, whether it will or it won't take his life. Um, so uh, so she places him in the basket or in the teva, and it, she puts it in the reeds by the bank of the Nile, and his sister stationed herself at a distance to learn what would befall him. So knowing that, that the teva is going to be directed by the current by God, by whatever, it can't be steered. There's nothing they can do. The reeds are safer than putting them out. So the reeds presumably are a little safer, um, but Miriam, it, I just love this. It doesn't mean you don't do anything. Yes, you maybe can't, you can't steer it, and you can't, you can't govern the outcome of it. But it doesn't mean you abdicate all responsibility. Miriam stations herself as a witness, if nothing else. She can witness. And we see that Miriam is another one of the women who intervenes and saves Moshe's life. She intervenes in a way that saves his life. So we think there's nothing we can do. Yocheved knows she can't do anything. Miriam thinks she can't do anything. But we don't abandon our responsibility to witness, to watch, and to wait for a moment that we can do something. Right? And she puts them in reeds. Suf. She does. Later, later... That is the Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds, is where the Israelites get rescued. Correct. Why, why are their names given? Very interesting. Why do you think that is, Sheldon, that we don't get a name here? Just to make it general. And what is the point of making it general? Sorry, you opened your mouth now, aren't you? It's not about Moses' ancestry. It's not, it's not, he didn't inherit his position. So 
we know he's a Levite, so that seems right. to be important. There is a part of his ancestry that seems important. But so it seems it isn't about a specific person. It's about every one of us, right? That every mother, every mother, every sister, every you know, in this case, but um, that. Even given that, I mean, the baby was already at least three months old. Might not have even went three months without any kind of a name, or just. It's a wonderful question. We don't even get Moshe's name. He's not named here. He's going to be named by Pharaoh's daughter. So did he have a Hebrew name? We don't know. We don't know if he went for three months without a name. We have no idea what happened in those three months. Absolutely no idea. This was before baby. <laughs> it was. He he is the youngest. In our case, older sons were chosen over younger sons. I mean, in in, our, in the Torah. Or let me let me rephrase. It's supposed to be that the older son gets everything, and if the younger son gets it, it it's by. Okay, but that's not the Israelite tradition is my point. That was not an Israelite tradition. Correct. Jacob tricked his older brother out of the birthright and then tricked his father to give him the blessing of the firstborn. And that's what I was saying. In every case, it's supposed to be that the oldest child gets it. And in every case in our story, the younger one tricks, does something to manipulate it. So it depends whether you consider what happens to Moshe a reward. <laughs> I, right, I'm not even being facetious. Like it, he didn't. Moshe didn't have an easy life, right? And Aaron becomes high priest. So Aaron, who's older, becomes high priest. And his sons become the priests after him. The priestly line is going to go through Aaron. Moshe's the prophet, right? And so it depends which one... Which one won? The, who got the better deal? That that would be an interesting conversation, right? Who who actually got the better deal of, in that one? Um, I think Moshe would argue Aaron <laughs> got the better deal. Um, all right, so where are we? Something very confusing For, here. I think you're getting there. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. Verse five, right? Paro's daughter Paro's daughter comes down to bathe in the Nile while her maidens walked along the Nile she spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it yes then there's the whole beautiful midrash about she couldn't reach it so don't don't read she sent she sent her slave Amma but Amma is an Aramaic word for arm rather she couldn't reach it but she sent her arm out and God created a miracle that extended her arm and made it long like you know what was that superhero that like is Gumby you know like like stretches rubber man whatever it is no the the one who has the arm rubber man or whatever it is whose arms like become as long as he needs them to so her arm becomes super 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 long and she's able to draw the uh, the Teva. In again, I think the reason for these Midrashim are all about it saying it looks impossible. It seems impossible. It seems it's very clear what's going to happen and it's doomsday for Moshe. 
And in every case, because women were vigilant to say, I don't know, and I can't reach it, a lot of people don't reach. But the answer is, the daughter of Paro in that Midrash reaches anyway. And it's only because she reaches that the miracle can happen that extends her arm all the way out into the Nile, right? That's why we're having the women's march. (laughs) And a few good men. That a few good men. When she opened it, she saw that it was a child, a boy, crying. And what happens in that moment that she sees this child and she hears it crying? Vatachmol alav. She experiences chemla. She experiences compassion. I mean, it's not a great translation, um, but she she experiences something that moves her, and and takes pity on this child. She, she took pity on it, and well, that's how they're translating Hamla's pity. It's not a great word. Mercy is better, but Rahamim is mercy, and this isn't really that. But it's, it's related to mercy, compassion. And she says, Batomer, she, th- this must be a Hebrew child. How? Why? It's in the river. So only... A Hebrew child will be put in the river? Was it dressed different? What did that mean? The child uh, poor Egyptian women. Poor Egyptian women. I would. I mean, abandoning infants was a common form of birth control. It still is. You abandon an infant, you expose it, and it dies, and you're done. So, I mean, everywhere in the world, our 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 financial and HR director just about adopted a baby from Colombia, this beautiful, beautiful baby boy with these huge blue eyes and curly, light hair, who was found in a garbage can. That They punched holes in the side of a garbage can, threw it in there, and put a lid on it. The exposure is, is, is a way that if you can't afford birth control, you deal with reproduction. So, poss- so possibly poor Egyptian women expose their babies as well. Is it because it's not exposed, Dafka? Because such care has been taken to try to shield him, that they, she feels like it's not an Egyptian baby, but but a Hebrew mother that's trying to to do something. Um, possibly, are they swaddled differently? Are Hebrew baby boys swaddled differently than Egyptian babies? Is there something about the cloth that's in the? Um, she doesn't know anything about Miriam yet at this moment. So. Does that? Does that speak to you maybe mean that people aren't doing that just because this any old? No. So how would she? It could. It could. It could. So what I also love about this story is that for Yocheved to do what she does, she's counting on chemla. Yocheved is counting on somebody's chemla. That somebody is going to feel Rahmanas for this child. So, and and for it to work, it needs to be the enemy, right? If if a Hebrew finds the baby and takes pity on it, so what? It's it's life is still forfeit, right? For this to work, she's counting on the enemy, feeling compassion for a baby. Ah, ah, an excellent question, Judith. So possibly she knows, but Paro comes down to the Nile to bathe, and she places that 
baby and stations Miriam exactly where she knows he's likely to be discovered by Egyptian royalty. But what might one assume the daughter of the most powerful man in the world who was worshipped in his country as a god, what do we assume she would do if she found a Hebrew baby? I mean, to, to count on the enemy's daughter not turn in a baby boy to defy her god father's <laughs> to defy her father who's a god right come on like who's gonna who would count on that like leaving a jewish baby on Ava Braun's doorstep L- right who would who would possibly count on somebody who had teenagers <laughs> somebody who had teenagers might count on that all right Hmm? Why do you say count on instead of hope for? Because I mean, I think she hoped, but she what she's what she's banking everything on by putting him in that basket. It, it, she's banking on somebody on the other side. There's other things she could have done. Presumably, I don't know what, but but our story is, and this is what I love about this story, is that she counts on that baby being found by the enemy, and. Someone who's the enemy taking pity on her son. That I, I we don't know anything about It's extraordinary. Maybe they knew Ivanka used to be a Democrat. <laughs> 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 Just saying. Sarah? I know somebody who's a child survivor who was put on church steps in Poland by her Jewish father. So that she could be saved by Christians. He counted. He counted on Hemla that that someone in that church would be Hemla would have Hemla on that baby. The, the only difference, and I'm not saying it's radically different, but I just want to lift up one difference: is she didn't leave it at Nazi headquarters. Right. The, the, in other words, you might assume that in a church. The people who work in a church and give their lives to God might have a propensity to, even if it's a Hebrew child, rescue it. I mean, I, I get it. It's still dangerous and it's still huge and it's still wonderful. Um, in this case, Yocheved is counting on a Nazi, right? You know, someone from the other side who's going to – and not only on the other side, who's closest to the hall of power, who is close to the seat of power. This is the palace, right? She's – if if it's intentional that right that it's Batya who's gonna that, that it's the daughter of Pharaoh that's gonna find it, then she's putting him right at the seat of power, the the place he would least expect. Maybe that's the only that that uh, her father would forgive Ivanka. For <laughs> <laughs> really, right? Is there any significance that right before this we've learned of the two midwives who also say? I think there's significance to every single woman in this story. And I think it's significant that it's women who save Moshe. Right? In an age and a time where women were so disempowered, I find it remarkable that our foundation narrative is about women defying the power systems of the time that allows Moshe to become the deliverer, you know, through God, of course, um, of the Jewish people. I find it extraordinary, actually. And we read it all the time and we know it and we just take it for granted. I just wanted to bust it open for us a little to say, there's nothing about this that should be here. <laughs> right? If you're writing a foundational narrative in a patriarchal society, this shouldn't be the way the story goes. And um, 
part of this because we don't know the background of, of the Pharaoh's daughter more than that's who she is. It, it, there's a mystical element here, too, that supports the theory that women are the ones who have, who have saved the, the heroes, finally. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe it has also to do with the same reason why it was the boys who were chosen. So the, the women can be the ones to save Moses because they are the less threatening uh, of the two men and women. So men couldn't do it because they would be they would pose a threat. They have more risk, too. The women, oh, they're not threatening. So it is, it's they who have the ability to kind of guide. And if I okay. Women are the enemies of the power. So, so I want, Hemla is the enemy of the power. Of power right? And we ask God, you know, Hamalta, you've had compassion on us, meaning we didn't earn it. Right? And, and I think that's the, the moral here. The midwives, Miriam, Yocheved, the daughter of Pharaoh, it's all about chemla. It's about taking this innocent, perfect life and feeling chemla, feeling compassion. That is always the enemy of power. Always. Tenderness, the heart opening is the enemy of power. There's cracks at the highest seat of the strongest, mightiest, scariest ruler in the world, and that crack is opened by compassion and by love and by tenderness, and it wins the day in our story, and it wins eventually, eventually. every time. Yeah, and, the, and the fact is the Pharaoh had a mother, so, right? Presumably. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably. All right, let's just close this out. Um, this must be a Hebrew child. The, the, imagine the scene. Batya takes the child out of the thing and says, it's a Hebrew child. Okay. Everybody now knows this is a Hebrew child, right? She's just said it out loud in front of witnesses. What does Miriam do at this moment? Brilliant. What does Miriam, Miriam do? Shall I go get you a Hebrew nurse to suckle the child for you? What has she just done? Keep it alive. <laughs> She's just made Pharaoh's daughter somebody who's going to keep the baby. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, what a cute little puppy. Let me go get you some food for it. Right? Like it, It's yours. Now, right? And so this brilliant move by Miriam, who is a slave girl to address Pharaoh's daughter? Possibly Miriam is taking her own life into her hands right here. She's offering to help, which is a good subterfuge. But to, but to address the daughter... Of the ki- of the king, as a slave girl, like this is a moment of incredible, we can imagine courage and bravery and chutzpah, right? We come from chutzpahdik mythic ancestors, so um, so she speaks to Pharaoh's daughter and not only speaks but saves his life by suggesting she's going to keep the baby, and Pharaoh's daughter answered yes. So in that moment, his life is spared. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Who was her mother, too. Who was her mother, too. So she knows, who's, she knows who the mother is, right? The omniscient author, and we know that. Presumably, obviously, Pharaoh's daughter doesn't know that it's the mother. She just knows it's a wet nurse. But imagine, for Yocheved, that Miriam comes and says, here's the baby, and Pharaoh's daughter is going to adopt him, and you are going to feed him until then.
And then here's the mother who didn't kill the baby, who was supposed to. But daughter Pharaoh doesn't know that. Identifier. Does no. not know that. No, to the omniscient author, it's clear. Nothing is said to Pharaoh's daughter. Just a wet nurse. Oh, there was just a wet nurse. For Pharaoh's daughter, she could just doesn't be a wet nurse. We, from the omniscient narrator, know that it's the boy's mother, but she doesn't know that. But so keep him until he grows up. So in the ancient world, they nursed until about the age of three or four. So probably one of the reasons, that, that's probably one of the ways, right, babies were spaced um, out was that you nursed for until the child got different teeth um, and even past that, right? Um, so if you talk about every four years, right, you're, you're nursing for four years at a time, it makes sense. Um, and And it appears that's... We, what it means here is that till he's weaned, right? She's gonna she's gonna nurse him until he no longer needs a wet nurse, and that is what happens. So Yocheved is paid to nurse her own son, knowing she's not gonna raise this child, right? I can't quite imagine what that is for Yocheved. Um, when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, who made him her son. So she's wean she weans Moshe. And she brings him to the palace to turn him over to the princess to be raised in the hall of the enemy. Is there any um, talk about during those years of the princess and Yoheba having any kind of contact? Or did she ever have contact with the child? We have nothing. We know nothing. Um, there's, there's some midrash, but not a lot about this period. Um, so, so we know nothing other than we know that must be, I can't imagine what it is to nurse your own son that you know you're going to have to give over to be raised not only in the house of the enemy, but at the headquarters but she right had, of the enemy. But she had given up the child and thought she'd never see it again. Okay, so you're nursing your child knowing you're going to have to have him raised in the headquarters of Nazi Germany. And women did it. Look, women and men did it all the time. I'm not suggesting it's it's worse than the other option. I'm I'm saying if we look behind just the words here, this is this it's a wrenching story on on every level for everybody uh, involved. She's giving him trust. He becomes a trustful, loving child through that nurturing that he's getting from her and he has more possibility of surviving in this hostile environment afterwards. Elena, loving the rose-colored glasses. Love that. <laughs> Love that. Beautiful. Beautifully said. Beautifully envisioned. That's so traumatic for Moses three or four. How is that played out in the rest of the life? Um, the only thing I can imagine is that he would have been like every other wealthy child of nobility and of royalty that you're raised by the nanny. <laughs> You're you're not you, you don't suckle at your mother's breast if your mother's the daughter of Pharaoh, it, you know what I mean? And but but an interesting thing would be to ask how exactly so at four years old he shows up on the doorstep, take two pages, um, and all of a sudden she has a son. Well, what does she say to Pharaoh, uh, Dad? There's something I forgot to tell. She's not been pregnant. She's She's had no pregnancy. She, she's not married that we know of. How how does she explain at three years old she has a son that she's going to present to Paro? Right? Somebody, Laura, you'll get working on writing that midrash. Yeah. 
She's yes. Yeah. She's privileged. She's privileged. So that's a very good question. We don't know that Moses knows he's Hebrew. The, the omniscient author narrator knows he's a Hebrew. We don't know that he knows he's a Hebrew. Because it says when he goes out, he sees one of his kinsmen. We know that it's one of his kinsmen. We don't know that Moses knows that. Correct. Which I also talked about a lot in one of my talks. Because do, does he know? It changes the story if he knows he's a Hebrew or he doesn't know he's a Hebrew. I prefer that he doesn't know He's a Hebrew. What he's reacting to is the violence of the taskmaster, and he acts out of compassion for the Hebrew, not because it's one of his own, right? But but we don't know. So look at bringing down the empire. This second paragraph, this part of our story is an ancient observation about the vulnerabilities of absolute power structures in human societies. Even if they are seemingly invincible, these power structures have cracks at them, even at the highest levels. Poor Yocheved, baby Moses' biological mother, acted on the hope that this crack was part of reality. It was a desperate act. She dared to have faith that there was something more to the world than raw power and callousness. She cast her condemned son upon the waters of the Nile, the symbol of the life of all Egypt, in the hope that someone somewhere in this empire of cruelty might feel a stirring of sympathy and choose to rescue the child. So what I said before, beautifully stated here by um, Maurice Harris, right? So really, really about, as Fran said, about hope and the goodness of, of humanity, even though it seems it's all about, right, power and, and callousness. Um, and, and the other thing I love is that in every way, Moshe is other, right? So he's... He's born to these these slaves. We don't know if he knows he's a Hebrew, but he is a Hebrew being raised in Pharaoh's house, right? And um, and so uh, I, this is Maurice Harris again. It's in uh, parentheses for you at the bottom. The selfless women in Moses' young life give birth to the independence of mind that will allow him to assume his role as leader. From them... Moses learns to examine the norms and values of his environment and to reject the corruption he sees among Egyptian and Israelite alike. The daughters in this narrative lead Moses to an awareness of his otherness and ultimately to a discovery of the heroism needed to conceive of and carry out the move to redemption. He's not raised as a Hebrew. He's raised as a royal Egyptian Right, So he's going to become the leader of our people, and it's critical, Maurice Harris suggests, that he's other, that he's an outsider, that he's not raised, that he's not going to do what he's going to do in the culture he's raised in. Right? Obama. <laughs> so he's going to, he needs, he needs the status of other in order to help him think independently and to challenge the norms and, and values um, of Egyptian society. His otherness was a key factor in challenging the norms of his society and adoptive status. Those of us who have felt like the other bring this very quality to the Jewish community or any community we become a part of. Uh, look at page, the next page. Does it start with we need both the identities we're born with? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So he's born as a Hebrew, um, but he, he becomes an Egyptian royal. Tyrants like Pharaoh have the power to name things, and they count on the names of things remaining stable, 
like the other objects of their control. What they can't control, however, is something the Torah shows us in this story. The unexpected events of our lives can change us utterly, even changing our names, renaming us into members of a counterforce to the system of oppression. Right? Beautiful. Beautifully stated by Maurice Harris. And his book, all my quotes are from his book called Moses, A Stranger Among Us. And he talks about the fact that Moshe is a stranger, like, in every single way. Like, he's exiled, so he's not, he doesn't even stay within, right, that culture. He's he's the consummate other. He marries a non-Jew. He marries the daughter of the high priest of Midian. He's raised as a non-Hebrew, right? And by Batya, who's his adoptive mother. He's not raised in his birth family, right? So on every level, Moshe is an outsider. He's different. He's a stranger. Um, And talking about this moment with Pharaoh's daughter, in the brief moment described in this verse, the daughter of the most powerful emperor in the world stood face to face with an abandoned Hebrew baby boy condemned to die by her father's order. The seed of the overthrow of four centuries of slavery was planted. In the time it took for one young woman's heart to feel a pulse of compassion strong enough to evoke action, the gods of Egypt fell and the God of Israel entered the drama of history and the world's stage as the champion of the oppressed. The revolution was born in the most unlikely of places, inside his unnamed daughter's heart. Um... And I will close with, uh, on page, it's a circle three on your top right corner, hopefully. Yes? yes. You see the orange? Yes. So going back to the word chayot, animals, the root of chayot is what? Chay. Life. Right? So um, they, on, they not only won't kill, right, the Hebrew women, but they are chayot. They are life givers right they are people who are attached to creating and sustaining life the significance of this story is that it is the first recorded instance of one of Judaism's greatest contributions to civilization the idea that there are moral limits to power there are instructions that should not be obeyed there are crimes against humanity that cannot be excused by the claim I was only obeying orders this concept generally known as civil disobedience is usually attributed to the 19th century American writer Henry David Thoreau and entered international consciousness after the Holocaust and the Nuremberg trials. Its true origin, though, lay thousands of years earlier in the actions of two women, Shifra and Pua. Through their understated courage, they earned a high place among the moral heroes of history, teaching us the primacy of conscience over conformity, the law of justice over the law of the land. Shifra and Pua, by by refusing to obey an immoral order, redefined the moral imagination of the world. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.